Well, again, good morning and welcome to Allen Creek Community Church. Uh, 20 years ago, we did some weird dramas back then, didn't we? Uh, we're all saying that backstage, like, that was really creepy. So, anyhow, we pulled it out of the, out of the box. So that's what we did. That's what we did. So, uh, let's pause for a second. Let's pray before we look into the last of these topics. God, uh, we have seen some disturbing sights in the city of angels, some sobering things that cause us to question and wonder. And so I pray that you would give us perspective and comfort as we look into your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, let's talk, uh, start by talking about Farmer Brown. Man, Farmer Brown, he had really, really bad troubles. He lived in the 70s, so he's caught in the, the crash of farmland prices back then in the mid-70s, and, and the interest rates then were eating him alive, and he almost lost his farm. But he told himself, you know, cheer up, because things could be worse. And sure enough, he cheered up, and things got worse. Uh, his wife ran off to Australia uh, with a professional wrestler. His daughter left for the big city to, become a uh, to work in a massage parlor. His son dropped out of school to become a pothead rapper. Then Farmer Brown had an epiphany. He realized this must be a test from God. He just had to hang in there. He had to persevere. So then came the drought of the 80s, and a huge windstorm blew away almost all his topsoil. Only thing left was a tiny little spot down by the river that hadn't dried up yet. So he persevered and promised God that he would plow that place in the morning. Uh, he just was going to need to wake up when he went to that bottom acre. And, but when he woke up, his barn was on fire. So here's Farmer Brown. He rushes in, still determined, rushes into the fire to get his tractor and plow. And in so doing, severely burned his face. Undaunted still. He drove that tractor down to the river to plow that bottom maker, but because of the burns, he could hardly see, and one of the wheels of the tractor fell into a ditch. The tractor flipped over and crushed Farmer Brown beneath it. With his last dying breath, he screamed at the heavens with his fist raised, saying, Why? Why, God? Why was I chosen for this test? And then a little cloud kind of formed there in the blue morning sky, and a window opened in the heavens, and, and a special shaft of light alighted on Farmer Brown, which soothed his soul. And then a soft and gentle voice spoke to him out of the clouds, saying, I, I don't know, there's just something about you that ticks me off. <clears throat> now, that's how we feel about God, right? In the middle of suffering and pain and disappointment, we have this capricious idea of the Almighty in heaven, kind of like a kid with a magnifying glass frying ants on the sidewalk a little bit. He just, there's some about us that just ticks him off, and so he's chosen us for special suffering. Well, that's a very humorous way of looking at it, but you go to our Y board over here where you had a chance to ask God questions. Dear God, over here on my left, your right, and, and it was heartbreaking. It really was. I pulled those off this week, and I prayed over all of your responses. Dear God. And almost all of them had to do with this question about suffering. Questions like, why do I suffer so much? Why does my family fight? Why did and still does my family suffer deaths? Why is there so much suffering in the world? Why can't you heal my boyfriend? Well, friend, this, this question, God, where are you when I hurt, is a critical question. It's been asked by literally millions of people over many ages, and it presents a huge pushback to the Christian faith. Did you know that? It presents what critics of Christianity call the problem of evil. And it represents a challenge to certain Christian ideas. See, it kind of can be framed like this, in a sentence. The Bible states explicitly that God is good and that God is all-powerful. And yet, because horrendous evil exists, 
Either God isn't powerful enough to stop it, or he's not loving enough to care to stop it, or both. And there's your problem. And that is a problem, isn't it? There's a logical inconsistency there. How can we believe in this biblical God, the God revealed to us in Jesus Christ, how can we believe in a good God in the face of evil? Well, that's the question this morning. Now, the truth is that we can actually go a long way to help alleviate the logical tension inside of the problem of evil if we begin to define the specific parts. And I don't know if you notice this, but there are three specific parts to the problem of evil. Number one is this idea of God's omnipotence. He can do whatever he wants. Number two is this idea of God's benevolence, that God is all-loving. And then number three is, is this idea that, that evil exists, that it's a real and true thing. So let's talk about each one of those pieces, shall we? Number one, let's talk about God's omnipotence. We'll begin with this illustration. A while ago, I was um, uh, listening to the radio, and there was a comedian that came on. And he told this uh, story about when he was part of a, tra a traveling drama and singing troupe. In one particular road trip, they decided to do a marathon driving thing, and they went for 48 hours straight. And he was uh, kind of asked to do the driving. So during this driving marathon, the comedian says he fell asleep at the wheel. The truck and all the equipment and all the, cra uh, all the team members crashed into a ditch. He broke both his legs in multiple places and several other fractures in his body. Now, you're saying, this is not a comedian's story. Well, it was because, you know, he, he told the story about his physical therapy and, and, and I think a fictitious name he made up for his therapist called Helga and all sorts of funny stuff was, ensued. But then suddenly, after all the funny stories about his physical therapy and all that stuff, he suddenly got really serious. And he said, you know, I've come to realize since that accident that there's a very good reason why that truck crashed into the ditch that night. And there's a pregnant pause. You know, you're waiting for the big epiphany, right? And he says, the reason is, I fell asleep. And that's it. Now, you're, you're waiting for something more than that, right? I mean, the whole story, you're setting up for this big kind of epiphany about the providence of God or something like that. And, and we're not expecting that because intuitively, when suffering happens to us, we immediately reach out for the power of God to fix it. We say, oh, something bad happened. Why didn't you fix it? I mean, you're the God who has all powerful. We intuitively believe what Jesus said about his father. We said, Matthew chapter 19, 26, with God, all things are possible. So if that's true, we think, well, God, why didn't you stop me from marrying my ex-husband in the first place? You know, why didn't you save that kid from drowning? Why didn't you stop that drunk driver from hitting my baby? These are the questions when we think about God's omnipotence. So this is why we need to define this, because these are the knee-jerk responses. We just assume that omnipotence means omni-controlling. But we have to define this, friends, because I want to say to you something that might be startling to some of you, and, and the startling thing is simply this, that there are some things that the Almighty can't do. There are some things that an omnipotent being can't do. You say, well, that doesn't make any sense. I thought omnipotence meant... Well, think about it for just a second. Number one, God cannot lie. The Bible says that actually several places. It says God is not a man that he should lie. So the Bible is kind of clear that God cannot do bad stuff. He's good. He's perfect. So God doesn't do evil. A morally perfect being cannot act in contradiction to his nature. That's just logically inconsistent. God can't make two plus two equal five. Can't do that. God can't make you smell the color nine. Can't do that. God can't do nonsense. 
And that's an interesting thing, right? Because we constantly want to put God in nonsense situations, right? When we talk about God's omnipotence, right, we get real clever and we say, well, can God make a stone so big he can't lift it? Because if he can't make that stone big enough, he's not omnipotent. If he can't lift it, he's not omnipotent, so there's a real problem. Right? That's nonsense. But we put God in nonsense situations. We say, can God make a married bachelor? Huh? If he's omnipotent, he's so powerful. Can he make a married bachelor? Can he make a square triangle? No, he can't do any of those things. Why not? Because God doesn't do nonsense. Now, that's a very interesting thing. The idea that God can't make a square triangle is no, is no a diminishment of his power since the thing that he can't do isn't a thing, AC. God can only do all things that are possible, all possible things. Well, in the same way that God can't do these inherently impossible things, these logical inconsistencies, these nonsense things, God is also unable to control everything in a universe where he has delegated controlling power to you. That's just just a matter of fact, isn't it? It makes sense. The Bible affirms that you and I are free moral agents. But think about that for a second. If you really have free will, and by the way, if you're a materialist, that's kind of like you, you can't have that view. If you're an atheist, you kind of have to believe that everything's in lockdown to natural laws and physical processes, including all the chemistry that's going on in your brain right now. You don't really have free will. But in, in, the, in the Christian system, you're free. You're, you're really and literally free. You can make real choices. Now, if that's really true, then think about that. In a world populated by free moral agents, then by necessity and by definition, God must have had to con- withhold some of his controlling power. If, if all power comes from him, which is true, then he must withhold some of his controlling power because he loans some to you. And if he's still controlling through the controlling power he gave to you, then he didn't really give it to you, did he? Right? He didn't really give it to you. Then, then you're just his puppet. But if you're really free, if you're really free, then God has delegated some of his controlling power. Now think about it. If God had not chosen to uh, withhold his power, uh, you and I could not really be free. Why? Well, because as soon as your will and his will conflicted with each other, then what would happen? Well, he'd win. (laughs) And you'd lose, and then God just gets his way, and then really there's no freedom anymore. Because as soon as you contradict him, omnipotence always wins. Now, if God did make all the choices, you ask yourself, would that eliminate pain and suffering? It would. Because the Bible's really clear about one thing. God is good. He only does good. He doesn't do evil. And pain and suffering don't, they are not an end in and of themselves. As, we, as we'll see, God may use them for some greater good, but in and of themselves, pain and suffering have no worth or value. And so if God was making all the choices, they would be gone. There would be no pain or suffering. But God doesn't make all the choices. You make some choices, and your neighbor makes choices. We have free choices. And so because God doesn't make all the choices, then everything is not going to go according to his perfect and good will. But if you suffered at the other end of somebody else's free choices and bad choices, you might push back on this whole thing and say, well, Rick, but why couldn't God have made a different kind of world then? I mean, couldn't he just have made a different kind of world where people couldn't choose evil? Well, he could have, but then we wouldn't really be free. And the Christian response to this has always been that God didn't want a world populated by robots. God wanted a world where his highest creatures could, of their own free will, choose him to follow him in love. 
Now think about how much love you could get off of a creature that was simply programmed to love you. You say, well, why doesn't God just make it so everybody loves him? And then there's no abuse of freedom, and then there's no bad stuff that happens. Well, think about this with your computer. Do you remember um, back in the day when we had screensavers and they had little text, you know, and the text would flash across your screen constantly all day if you weren't using your computer? And you could program it to say whatever you want, I love my wife, or something like that. Well, you could have programmed, if you wanted it to, you could program it to say, um, I love you, Rick, sign your computer. Right? You, I, I could have programmed my screensaver to say that. Now, let me ask you this question. How much love am I feeling coming off that computer if I program the screensaver to say that? How much love? On a scale from 0 to 10, how much love am I feeling from that dirty little box which has given me the blue screen of death more times than I want to tell you about that I wanted to strangle and throw it in the ocean? Okay? How much love am I feeling from that computer when it says to me every morning on the screensaver, I love you, Rick? Zero. Zero is the answer. That's the correct answer. I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling any love from the robot that I programmed to tell me to love me. Right? So God makes a world that's rugged and real where you have the freedom to choose to love God or not. Or not. And when you look at this, friends, you, uh, you kind of look, this is the whole point of creation. You go to the creation narrative, Genesis 2, chapter 16. And the Lord commanded the man, you are, here's the word, free to eat of any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day that you eat of it, you will certainly die. So the tree in the garden, friends, this is God's monument to human freedom. And it's basically saying that what I want is people who will freely choose me. And that means for the sake of love, because love is impossible without such freedom. You can't have freedom, or you can't have love without freedom. And so for the sake of love, God has surrendered a piece of his controlling power to you. And to your neighbor. And Adolf Hitler. Right? He surrendered a piece of his controlling power. Now what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? But you may still protest to this. I know some of you will say, but couldn't have God break into the natural order? Okay, so he makes us free, but then when we freely choose badly, which is going to wreck somebody's life and really hurt somebody else, God steps in miraculously and fixes it, like he's the cosmic janitor. He's going to come along and he's going to sweep up after us. Well, Christians believe that God can and do, does intervene. What do we call that? We call that a miracle. He intervenes into the natural order of physical causes and effects, and he can break in um, and, uh, and, and do a miracle. But understand something, friends. If we're going to be truly free, if freedom's going to be like at the center of the creation work, then miracles must be rare. They have to be rare. You say, well, why? Why can't just God just do it? You've wondered that before, but why doesn't God just prove himself over and over? Boom, now everybody believes in him because he does so many miracles. Understand something. Miracles have to be rare if God is after love because love implies non-coercion. Imagine the world, okay? Imagine the world where God just did miracles cleaning up every time someone was going to abuse their free uh, will. What would our world look like? Well, a gun would malfunction in the middle of a murder. Telephone lines would refuse to operate when someone was gossiping. Lips would grow numb right before you're going to say something hurtful or cruel. But go back even further than that. The synapses in your brain wouldn't fire to form the thought 
to lie or to commit the violence. Bank accounts would drain the moment you decided you were going to buy a Volkswagen. These are the things that would happen. Okay? These are the things that would Miracles all the time. But imagine living in this kind of world. Such a world, AC3, is an absurdity. And you can't functionally have a real relationship with your neighbor in that kind of world because the rules in the playing field are constantly changing according to your whim or mind. And so it's a toy world, really. We're talking about, well, why, why isn't there a toy world? A world where it's just a movie in God's head. There's nothing that he risks. But understand something, AC3, God risks. He risks when he creates. What does he risk? He risks pain. What does he risk when he puts people in the Garden of Eden and said, of any tree, you are free to eat. He risks Idi Amin. He risks suffering. He risks evil. And so rather than the toy world, we have this world. We have a real world. And it's gritty and risky and rough. Why? Because God chose to delegate a part of his controlling power to you. And why did he do that? Just because he wanted to have some fun? one day, spice up his life, see how it happened, see what would happen? No. For the sake of love. He did it for love. Because you can't have love without this gritty, rough world of freedom. All right, speaking of love, let's define the second piece of the problem, which is this whole idea of God's omnibenevolence. Now, here's, let's underline a problem we've got with the whole love thing. We live in a culture that worships comfort. You know, I mean, we really are good at it. I mean, we've learned to control our environment with central heating and air conditioning. We walk from one 75-degree environment to another, right? Uh, buildings, well, not this building, uh, but uh, as you well know. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, your, your, your home, then your car, and whatever. Uh, we've we've uh, reduced drudgery through uh, the machines and computers, and, and we've learned to control pain and depression and stress through drugs. We've even, if you want to call boredom a pain... Well, we've, we've got, we've, we develop all sorts of means to alleviate the pain of boredom, right? All the beautiful video games and television and movies and all that stuff we got to. We, we've got comfort down to a science. So guess, this is an interesting thing. So guess where pain and suffering is used most often as an argument against the existence of God? Where in the world is that usually put forward as an argument against God? Here, in the coddled, pampered West. That's where. Here where we, relatively speaking, suffer the least, we, are, we marshal the problem of evil the most as an argument against God. Meanwhile, in the third world, where relatively they suffer far, far more, where Christianity is exploding, the problem of evil isn't nearly as much of a problem. It's a thing evil is, that is, evil, suffering, and pain is something that drives people to God. So this is a fantastic and ironic situation. You've got sort of the pompous... Uh, and high-minded and high-sounding Western skeptics saying, I have lost my faith in God because of the suffering of the Rwandans. And then you go to Rwanda. And then you poll people there. And the Rwandans say, suffering has drawn us closer to the only one who can protect us and help us and comfort us in a world of pain and suffering. And that's a fact. I mean, just generally speaking, where is Christianity exploding in the places where people are experiencing more pain and more suffering than you ever will. So the irony there is just really, really deep. And so I, I, I point this out, friends, just to say maybe there's something a bit off about how we look at suffering and connecting it to love. See, we've got this connection in the West, the pampered West, that if I love someone, I must want to bring their comfort 
at all times. Now, we transport that to our relationship with God, and we think to ourselves, well, if God really loves me, my comfort must be his number one priority because he's the biggest lover, so he's got the most comfort in his mind for me and for you. Well, friends, I think that that's kind of broken. But we've got this idea, and, and uh, well, certainly God is love. I mean, everybody in the country over five years of age has got at least one Bible verse memorized. It's 1 John chapter 4, 16. Three words, right? God is love. Everyone's got that verse memorized. But what does that mean? God is love. Those of you who have, are your parents and you've got children, well, you know that to love them is, is something more than just merely arranging for their comfort. Right? I, I hope. I hope your parenting is more than just arranging for their comfort. In fact, because you love them, you discipline them. And because you love them, you'd rather see them, you actually intentionally are putting them in, in, in painful situations. That's kind of what discipline does, right? Wow, you're mean. You're really cruel. Or, 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 or love is something more than just mere kindness. That you'd rather put them through some pain now than have them be happy and spoiled. Rather some pain now than they be happy and disrespectful. Rather some pain now than they be happy and selfish. Rather some pain now than they be happy and narcissistic. So there you are, inflicting pain all over the place. Man, you, you don't love, do you? Oh, or, or we have a bad, a faulty definition of love. If God is love, then he must be something more than a Santa Claus God that just wants you to be comfortable in your own way. No, we have something more than that. In Scripture, C.S. Lewis says, we have a God who has paid us the intolerable compliment of loving us. <laughs> I love how he puts that. The intolerable compliment of loving us. Think about this in your friendships. The Bible says, Proverbs 27, verse 6, wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. So, if I truly love my friends, if I value my relationships, I will embrace some pain sometimes that is required to make them work which means difficult and sometimes painful truth-telling. Now insert yourself and your relationship with God into that verse. Would you rather have wounds from God or kisses from God's enemy? Does all pain mean that God doesn't care? No. No, that's not what that means. Think about this through the lenses of a painter. I do some painting, right? So imagine, you know, I, I'll do a little, you know, quick sketch. Uh, for my daughter, I'll just, you know, 30 seconds, I'll just, you know, on a piece of paper and throw it at her. And I didn't really take much care or concern for that. And it's uh, 30 seconds, I, no trouble, right? But over my magnum opus, you know, the great oil painting that I'm going to try to make, I clear out the garage and I tell them, nobody bug me for four hours, right? And I'm, I'm making, I'm creating. And, 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 I'm, and over that, I'm pouring endless amounts of trouble because it's my masterpiece. It's a thing I love. It's a thing I'm pouring myself into. I'm, I'm taking all sorts of trouble for my masterpiece. Now imagine my canvas could talk. It might learn very quickly how to swear because it would say, man, I wish he would stop loving me so much because he starts over and over and he scrapes me with his, with his little you know, painter's knife and he, he starts me over for the 10th time. And if the painting could talk, it might wish for less love rather than more, or less pain, but it would, it would be asking for less love rather than more. And see, understand something, my friends, in God's eyes, you're a masterpiece. 
your masterpiece. And God's not done until he's made of you what he is. Until he plants in you the very nature of Jesus Christ. You're a masterpiece. And over you, he will take endless amounts of trouble. And some of you are wishing for less trouble. But just understand something. That means you're asking for less love. God is able to use this. So the Bible is clear about something, right? That God doesn't invent temptation. God is not the source or the inventor of suffering or evil or sin or pain. God doesn't like pain, just like you're a parent and you don't like to discipline your children. But a loving God will use it as a powerful changing force in your life if you'll let him. Now let's wrap with this third thing, and that's defining the whole idea of evil and the reality of it. And the fact is that the world is cruel and uh, at times evil and bloody and harsh. This is disputed by nobody. But then you have to ask yourself, why did anyone ever come up with the idea that this world that we live in, this harsh and evil world, is, is sourced in a benevolent creator? I mean, that's a total non sequitur. How did we ever come up with the idea? So maybe much simpler, it would be for us just to toss out the benevolent creator idea. It doesn't help us deal with this evil. It doesn't help us make it any better. It's, it, it doesn't dry anybody's tears. But at least we're not confused, right? Then at least we're not confused about why a benevolent God is allowing this harshness and cruelty and evil. But there's a problem. That's a simple solution. It really is a simple solution. But C.S. Lewis called that a boy's philosophy because it was too simple. Here's what he said about the whole thing. And by the way, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> C.S. Lewis was an atheist before he became a Christian and wrote so profoundly about the Christian faith. So here's what he writes about his changeover. He said, my whole argument against God was that the universe was so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? And man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such violent reaction against it? A man feels wet when he falls into water because a man is not a water animal. A fish would not feel wet. He continues, of course, I could give up my idea of justice as a private idea put into me by centuries of the herd instinct, but then my whole argument collapsed. For I believe that reality was really evil and cruel, not just that it didn't please my private fancies. So, in trying to use evil to explain away God's existence, I realized he was the very reason I had such an idea of evil in the first place. What's he saying? He's saying that your abhorrence of evil, rather than pointing away from God, actually points to God, to the architect of the human soul, who puts it in uh, your moral nature to be outraged when children go hungry and to be angry when you see victims murdered in the streets and when you see disease taking people young. You are supposed to see God in Jesus going from town to town, and what is he doing? He's curing and healing and pushing back evil and forgiving sin. You're supposed to see God at war with evil. And he's put the intuition in you to see evil as something to be abhorred and resisted and something to, be, to make you angry. God's not judging you for that. God's with you in that. He's saying, about time will you join me in my war against evil. 
See, the only way that we know what something is wrong is if there's something inside us that we have a standard of what is right. And so if we're just, you know, another part of the animal kingdom struggling for survival on the planet, we would never ask, why is there pain? Because that's all we would know. We're fish. We're wet. We wouldn't say, hey, I'm so wet. It would just be your world. You wouldn't be asking uh, perplexing questions about it. Do dogs shudder at roadkill? No, mine might eat it, but, you know, not shudder at it. Are cows outraged by farms? No, but senseless violence turns your stomach and, and slavery makes you angry. Why? Well, the Bible's answer is because a good God has implanted a moral nature inside you. So, yes, there is evil, but no matter how confusing it is, and we don't pretend to have all the answers to it, it chases an honest heart to God who is at war with evil. He is not indifferent to it, and he's asking you to join him in his fight. All right, so maybe some of that helps. Resolve some of the tensions inside the problem of evil. Sounds good, but I'm telling you, and I know this, intellectual answers are not satisfying when you are besieged with pain, right? At that moment, it gets really, really personal. And intellectual responses, like I've just given, perhaps don't really satisfy. Speaking of which, you maybe forgive me for going back to C.S. Lewis one more time because his life illustrates this. Lewis was a really smart guy with good reasons uh, for how a loving God fits into a world of pain in general. But then one day he met a woman named Joy Gresham and he found out what it was like to have pain in specific. Not because his marriage was awful, but in fact for the opposite reason, his marriage was a delight and a wonderful gift to him late in his life. And as the movie Shadowlands showed, I don't know if you saw that movie a long time ago, uh, Joy Gresham was a wake-up call for Lewis. She aroused his curiosity, his interest, his love. He was head over heels. This was a gift to him in every way. Very soon, however, after they married, she came down with bone cancer and died. And Lewis's heart was crushed. And it suddenly, you know, he wrote the problem of pain. He wrote that book, the book I've been quoting to you this morning, before he met Joy, uh, Joy Gresham and before she died so tragically. And suddenly it didn't matter to him that he had great reasons why God had created a good world that was subject to disease and death and that whole deal. Now he had different questions, and maybe you have different questions as well. Questions like, is God mad at me? Have I done something wrong? What on earth is God trying to teach me? Is God sadistic? When is this going to go away? There's a bunch of new questions, very personal questions. And that experience shook his faith down to his roots. To all our deep and unanswered questions about pain, AC3, God wants you to know something. One day, God's wiping it all away. There's stuff that you, I, I can't answer. There, 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 are, there are answers you've asked on the Y board, and I could never presume to answer them because I cannot dive inside the mind of God to plumb the, the greater good that may be behind the evil that you have suffered. But here's the promise. The promise, Revelation chapter 21 that God is bringing this all to a grand conclusion, and it looks like this. Look, God's dwelling will be with men one day, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will exist no longer. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer, for the old order of things has passed away. That's the promise in Christ who says, Behold, I make all things new. I hold that out to you, friends, as hope. But there's one thing more. It is the gospel. 
Perhaps you think it's a, a, a glib for me to mention that God could use pain for some greater good, but you understand that God knows what he's talking about when he says that because there's a reason why there was a cross. At the cross, Christian teaching tells us that God himself was enfleshed and experienced the horror of that Roman execution. See, understand something. He knows your tears because he too has cried. And he sees your hurt because he too has bled. And he sees your loneliness because he too was rejected by his best friends and everyone whom he held dear. He knows. He knows. So in Christianity, and it's the only system I know of in the entire world that looks at God this way, God suffers. God has suffered with you. He is with you in your pain. He enters into the pit with you, and he cries with you as Jesus cried with his friends, Mary and Martha, over the death of their brother. He cries with you, as Deb said earlier in her story, and he is with you in in the tragic situations of life. And he's calling you there, that in the moment where he has allowed that into your life, that he become the strength of your life, that when you are divested of everything else that you think you've got, all your answers and all your power to make things better and to make it fixed, and you're crying out to God as a last resort, he's saying, I'll be with you there. The strength of your life, the hope for tomorrow, the love that you'll pursue above all these other things. And sometimes it's only in the middle of those crushing blows that we ever say that stuff. You know, maybe you think that, you, you wonder why God is able to be seen so clearly in pain. Friends, it is because God has suffered for you. Peter says, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. So if you think it's glib that I tell you that God could bring something great out of the pain that you've experienced here today? Listen, look what God brought out of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the worst thing that ever happened, the greatest tragedy that the world ever experienced. And what he brought out of that was nothing less than the potential redemption of the human race. And so if God could do that through the greatest suffering, then what could he do through the suffering that you've something wonderful and something good. Let's pray together. Lord, with trust and faith in our hearts, we reach out to you, the only one who promised us that you can work together for good. All the junk that's happened in our life. That's just how powerful you are. Powerful enough, humble enough to delegate some controlling power to us and then through our own mistaken choices, work something around for your greater good. How you do this is a mystery to us, God, but we've seen you do it before. And so we're going to trust that you can do it again because you did it in the greatest way in the Lord Jesus Christ. And from his death and suffering, from his passion and blood, we have the forgiveness of sin and we have the new life and we have the Holy Spirit inside and we have hope life after life. It's in confidence of these great promises that we now trust you in our pain, and may you be glorified in it for Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. Thanks for coming, everybody. In this whole series, I appreciate your honesty and your great questions.